Chapter Fifteen of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gloom and Plans. Elam Parsons sat all day on the wide porch of the big house, nursing his resentment. He was hunched up in the chair. His shoulders were slouched forward, his chin resting on the wings of his high, starched collar, his lips in a pout, his eyes sullen and gleaming with malevolence. Parsons was beginning to recover from his astonishment over the attack Carrington had made on him. He saw now that he should have known Carrington was the kind of man he had shown himself to be, for now that Parsons reflected he remembered little things that Carrington had done which should have warned him. Carrington had never been a real friend. Carrington had used him. That was it. Carrington made him think he was an important member of the partnership, and he had thought it so himself. Now he understood Carrington. Carrington was selfish and cruel. More, Carrington was a beast and an ingrate. For it had been Parsons had made it possible for Carrington to succeed, for he had used Parsons' money all along, having had very little himself. So Parsons reflected, knowing, however, that he had not the courage to oppose Carrington. He feared Carrington. He had always feared him, but now his fear had become terror and hate, for Parsons could still feel the man's fingers at his throat, and as he sat there on the porch, his own fingers stroked the spot, while in his heart flamed a great yearning for vengeance. Marion Harlan had got up this morning, feeling rather more interested in the big house than she had felt the day before, or upon any day she had occupied it. She, like Parsons, had awakened with a presentiment of impending pleasure. But unlike Parsons, she found it impossible to definitely select an outstanding incident or memory upon which to base her expectations. Her anticipation seemed to be broad and inclusive, like a clear, unobstructed sunset, with an effulgent glow that seemed to embrace the whole world, warming it, bringing a great peace. For upon this morning, suddenly awakening to the pure white light that shone into her window, she was conscious of a feeling of satisfaction with life that was strange and foreign, a thing that she had never before experienced. Always there had been a shadow of the past to darken her vision of the future, but this morning that shadow seemed to have vanished. For a long time she could not understand, and she snuggled up in her bed, her brow thoughtfully furrowed, trying to solve the mystery. It was not until she got up and was looking out of the window at the mighty basin in which, like a dot of brown in a lake of emerald green, clustered the buildings of the Arrow Ranch. That knowledge, in an overwhelming flood, assailed her. Then a crimson flush stained her cheeks. Her eyes glowed with happiness, and she clasped her hands and stood rigid for a long time. She knew now... A name sprang to her lips, and she murmured it aloud softly, Quinton Taylor. Later she appeared to Martha, a vision that made the Negro woman gasp with amazement. "'What's happened to you, honey? 
Y'all got good news. You look light and airy, like you're going to fly. I've decided to like this place after all, Martha. I, I thought at first that I wouldn't, but I've changed my mind. Martha looked sharply at her, a sidelong glance that had quite a little subtle knowledge in it. I reckon that Squint Taylor makes a good many girls change their mind, honey. <laughs> Martha. Don't you get disturbed now, honey. Martha sure knows the signs. I done discovered the signs a long while ago, when I fall in love with a worthless nigger in St. Louis. He sure did captivate me, honey. I done tried to wiggle out of it, but tain't no use. Face the facts, Martha. Face the facts, I tell myself. And I done it. Ain't no use for to try and fool the facts, honey. Not one bit of use. The old fact, he look at you and say, don't you try to wiggle away from me. I's here, and here I'm going to stay. That squint man ain't no lady killer, honey, but he's sure a he-man from the ground up. Marion escaped Martha as quickly as she could, and after breakfast began to systematically rearrange the furniture to suit her artistic ideals. Martha helped, but not again did Martha refer to Quinton Taylor. Something in Marion's manner warned her that she could trespass too far in that direction. Sometime during the morning, Marion saw Parsons ride up and dismount at the stable door, and later she heard him cross the porch. She looked out of one of the front windows and saw him huddled in a big rocking chair, and she wondered at the depression that sat so heavily upon him. The girl did not pause in her work long enough to partake of the lunch that Martha set for her. So interested was she, and therefore she did not know whether or not Parsons came into the house. But along about four o'clock in the afternoon, wearied of her task, Marion entered the kitchen. From Martha she learned that Parsons had not stirred from the chair on the porch during the entire day. Concerned, Marion went out to him. Parsons did not hear her. He was still moodily and resentfully reviewing the incident of the morning. He started when the girl placed a gentle hand upon one of his shoulders, seeming to cringe from her touch. Then he looked up at her suddenly. "'What do you want?' he demanded. "'Don't you feel well, Uncle Elam?' she inquired. Her hand rose from his shoulder to his head and her fingers ran through his hair with a light, gentle touch that made him shiver with repugnance. There were times when Parsons hated this living image of his brother-in-law, with a fervor that seemed to sear his heart. Now, however, pity for himself had rather dulled the edge of his hatred. A calamity had befallen him. He was crushed under it, and the sympathy of one whom he hated was not entirely undesirable. No sense of guilt assailed the man. He had never betrayed his hate to her, and he would not do so now. That wasn't his way. He had always masked it from her, making her think he felt an affection for her, which was rather than the equal of that which custom required a man should feel for a niece. Yet he had always hated her. "'I'm not exactly well,' he muttered. "'It's the damned atmosphere, I suppose.' 
Martha tells me that it does affect some persons, said the girl. A lack of appetite seems to be one of the first symptoms, in your case, for Martha tells me that you have not eaten. The girl's soft voice irritated Parsons. Go away, he ordered crossly. I want to think. It was not the first time the girl had endured his moods. She smiled tolerantly and softly withdrew, busying herself inside the house. Parsons did not eat supper. He slunk off to bed and lay for hours in his room, brooding over the thing that had happened to him. He got up early the next morning, mounted his horse, and left the house before Marion could get a glimpse of him. It was still rather early when he reached Dawes. There, in a saloon, he overheard the story of the fight in the street in front of the courthouse, and with tingling eagerness and venomous satisfaction, he listened to a man telling another of the terrible punishment inflicted upon Carrington by Quinton Taylor. Parsons did not go to see Carrington, for he feared a repetition of Carrington's savage rage. Should he permit the latter to observe his satisfaction over the incident of yesterday? He knew he could not face Carrington and conceal the gloating triumph that gripped him. So he returned to the big house, and for the greater part of the day he sat in the rocker on the porch, his soul filled with a vindictive joy. He ate heartily, too, and his manner indicated that he had quite recovered from the indisposition that had affected him the previous day. He even smiled at Marion when she told him he was looking better. But his bitter yearning for vengeance had not been satisfied by the knowledge that Taylor had thrashed Carrington. He knew now that Carrington had ruthlessly cast him aside that he was no longer to figure importantly in the scheme to loot the town. He knew that it was Carrington's intention to rob him of every dollar he had entrusted to the man. He knew, too, that Carrington would not hesitate to murder him should he offer the slightest objection or should he make any visible resistance to Carrington's plans. But Parsons was determined to be revenged upon Carrington, and he was also convinced that he could secure his revenge without boldly announcing his plans. As for that, he had no plans. But while sitting in the rocker on the porch during the long afternoon, the vindictive light in his eyes suddenly deepened, and he grinned evilly. That night after supper, he exerted himself to be agreeable to Marion. During the interval between sunset and darkness, he walked with the girl along the edge of the butte above the big valley which held the irrigation dam. And while standing in a timber grove at the edge of the butte, he questioned her deftly about the news she had received of her father, and she told him of her visits to the Arrow. He had watched her narrowly, and he saw the flush that came into her cheeks each time Taylor was mentioned. "'He's a remarkably forceful man,' he observed once, when he mentioned Taylor. And if I'm not mistaken, Carrington is going to have his hands full with him. What do you mean? Do you mean that Mr. Taylor is not in sympathy with Carrington's plans concerning Dawes? I mean just that. And if you had happened to be in Dawes yesterday, 
you might have witnessed a demonstration of Taylor's lack of sympathy with Carrington's plans. For—and now Parsons' eyes gleamed maliciously—after Judge Littlefield, acting under instructions from the governor, had refused to administer the oath of office to Taylor, inducting his rival, Danforth, into the position instead— here the girl interrupted, and Parsons was forced to relate the tale in its entirety. "'Uncle Elam,' she said, when Parsons paused, "'are you certain that Carrington's intentions toward Dawes are honorable?' Parsons smiled crookedly behind a palm, and then uncertainly at the girl. "'I don't know, Marion. Carrington is rather a hard man to gauge. He has always been mighty uncommunicative, and headstrong. He's getting ruthless and domineering, too. I'm rather afraid, that is, my dear, that I'm beginning to believe that we made a mistake in Carrington. He doesn't seem to be the sort of man we thought him to be. If he were like that man Taylor now, he paused and glanced covertly at the girl, noting the glow in her eyes. Yes, he resumed, Taylor is a man, my dear, he added confidently. There's going to be trouble in Dawes, and I'm convinced of that, trouble between Carrington and Taylor. Taylor thrashed Carrington yesterday, but Carrington isn't the kind to give up. I have withdrawn from active participation in the affairs that brought me here. I'm not going to take sides. I don't care who wins. That may sound disloyal to you, but look here. He showed her several black and blue marks on his throat. Carrington did that the day before yesterday. Choked me. His voice quavered with self-pity, whereat the girl caught her breath in quick sympathy and bent to examine the marks. When she stood erect again, Parsons saw her eyes flashing with indignation, and he knew that whatever respect the girl had had for Carrington had been destroyed forever. Oh, she said, why did he choke you? "'Because I frankly told him I did not approve of his methods,' lied Parsons, smirking virtuously. "'He showed his hand, unmistakably, and his methods mean evil to Dawes.' The girl stiffened. "'I shall go directly to Dawes and tell Carrington what I think of him,' she declared. "'No, for God's sakes,' protested Parsons. "'He would kill me. He would know instantly that I had been talking.' My life would not be worth a snap of your fingers. Don't let on that I have said anything to you. Let him come here and treat him as you have always treated him. But warn Taylor. Taylor may know something. It is certain he suspects something. But Taylor will not know everything. Make a friend of Taylor, my dear. Go to him. Visit his ranch as much as you like. But if Carrington says anything to you about going there, Tell him I oppose it. That will mislead him. When Parsons and the girl reached the house, Parsons stood near the kitchen door and watched her enter. He did not go in himself. He walked around to the front and sat on the edge of the porch, grinning maliciously. For he knew something of the tortures of jealousy, and he was convinced that he had added something to the antagonism that already had been the cause of one clash between Carrington and Taylor. And Parsons was convinced that both he and Carrington had made a mistake in planning to loot Dawes, 
that, despite the connivance of the governor and Judge Littlefield, Quinton Taylor would defeat them. Parsons might lose his money, but the point was that Carrington would also lose. And if Parsons was wise and cautious and did not antagonize Taylor, there was a chance that he might gain more through his friendship, a professed friendship for Taylor. Then he would have won had he been loyal to Carrington. At the least, he would have the satisfaction of working against Carrington in the dark, and to a man of Parsons' character, that was a satisfaction not to be lightly considered. End of chapter 15